Hi, this is Wilson with Renew Church OC. Thanks for jumping into our podcast. Over the next three months, our new series is called Lineage, and we're going to walk through major characters of the Old Testament from Abraham all the way to Daniel and understand the movement of the nation of Israel. This is important because it's part of our lineage. Our lineage isn't just made up of our ethnic or national identity, but as Christians, it's primarily this Old Testament story. Abraham is the father of our faith. And in Ephesians, we learn that God is making one people, Jewish and Gentiles, into the story of lineage, of how God has called a people to himself. So I hope that as you read the Old Testament, it wouldn't just be stories of dead old Jewish guys, but you would look at it as your own ancestry, as part of your story and the story that we're continuing. Hope you enjoy our new series. Okay, welcome back. Well, as you've noticed in doing this uh, lineage series, our goal has been very practical. It's that we preach the Word of God and teach it in such a way that it's very practical to your life. So we want you to live out the Christian life. We want you to live it out uh, productively. We want it to profit you. We want this to really make you successful in what God's called you to. So in studying these characters of the Bible, we need to understand that they're mentors for our lives. In 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, the Word of God says that all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Did you get that? Uh, Scripture is used for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and for training. And the purpose is so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we want to teach you. We want to rebuke you. We want to correct you. And we want to train you wherever you are in your life right now. It's very practical. And so what we want to do is we want to look at these characters in the Bible. Could we put up the slide of these different characters? They're not all of the characters, but I just want to give you an idea that they have been our mentors. They've been our professors, as it were. We see Professor Joseph, and in studying his life, we studied how to handle temptation. We looked at Professor Moses, and we learned from him how to respond to God. We looked at Professor Joshua, and we looked and we saw how to move in faith. We saw a cautionary tale from Professor Samson on how to avoid worldliness. And we also looked last week at Professor Saul on how to forsake foolishness, how to come in repentance to God, teaching, rebuking, correcting, training, so that we might be thoroughly equipped for the Christian life. Well, this morning, if we could put up the next slide, we're going to look at 1 Samuel 24. And in doing, we want to look at the life of David this morning. He is our professor. And we're going to study specifically how to reconcile with those brothers and sisters who have sinned against us. We call this peacemaking. If you're taking notes, maybe write that down. Peacemaking. You know, one of my favorite books, if we could put up the next slide, is a book uh, by Ken Sandy entitled Peacemaker. Now, I've given you a couple of these Christian books that have meant a lot to me. This is one of those ones as well. 
And he writes in this book about resolving personal conflicts. Now, there's an excerpt that perfectly captures being a peacemaker. And this is what it says. Just listen. It says, peacemakers are people who breathe grace. They draw continually on the goodness and power of Jesus Christ, and they bring his love, mercy, forgiveness, and strength, and wisdom to the conflicts of daily life. God delights to breathe his grace through peacemakers and to use them to dissipate anger, to encourage repentance and reconciliation. So that when Christians learn to be peacemakers, they can turn conflict into an opportunity to strengthen relationships and make their lives a testimony to the love and the power of Jesus. Wow, wouldn't you love to experience that in your life? Wouldn't that be an amazing testimony that you could share to others, that you are a peacemaker who turns conflict into an opportunity? Uh, into the opportunity to strengthen relationships, maybe even here at Renew Church. And I'm just so excited with what it means to be a peacemaker. So let's learn principles on how to be peacemakers in the life of David. So 1 Kings chapter 24, let's begin reading in verse 1. It says, After Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told that David is in the desert of En Gedi. Verse 2, So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David. Now we have to stop and ask, why? Well, it's because Saul is chasing David to put him to death. He wants to kill David as soon as he can find him. So Saul handpicks 3,000 able young men to form an army to chase David and to exterminate him. Now for four years, David has been a fugitive. He has been running and hiding from King Saul and the Israeli army all over Israel. Now, that begs the question, why? Well, it's because Saul is jealous of David's success and fame. He's envious that God's hand is on him. Remember last week, we talked about how Samuel the prophet uh, pronounced judgment on Saul and said, because of your disobedience and your rebellion, Uh, God has rejected you as king. So Saul is well aware that he is a rejected king. And he sees David and God's hand is on him and he becomes envious. As a matter of fact, if we look in chapter 18, I I don't have it on screen at all, but in chapter 18, let me just read an excerpt and just listen. This is what, this is how it started at all. In verse six, it says, when the men were returning home, The women came out from all the towns of Israel to meet the king, was singing and dancing. And as they danced, they sang, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Saul was very angry and this displeased him greatly. They have credited to David tens of thousands, but me only with thousands. What more can he get but the kingdom? You see, as David and and Saul were coming back into Israel, all the ladies came out and they were singing a very innocent song, a song of celebration. But this song actually entered Saul's ear uh, wrong. It stirred up some anxiety. And all the worry and the fear and the insecurity that he had churned in his soul that maybe David might usurp him. And so... At that point, the Bible says, Saul had a watchful, envious, jealous eye on David. 
Now, let me ask you, did David do anything wrong to Saul? Well, no. As a matter of fact, David had been a model, a model a servant to the king, loyal and faithful and obedient in every way, yet Saul is sinning against him. And this is the heartbreaking part of it all. Here, David is running. He's been running for years. He's been afraid of death because Saul is, uh, Saul is, is insecure. Saul is jealous. And here, uh, he's trying to find him to kill him without a just cause. Now we come to verse 3. Let's look at it. So Saul came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there, and Saul went in to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. Now, can you picture this scene? David finds himself in the same cave with Saul. Saul just went into a random cave to relieve himself to go to the bathroom. And here, David is hiding deep within the cave with his men. Saul is pretty much alone. He's vulnerable. Now, this is the same person who's been hunting him down. He has caused more pain and more sorrow and more anxiety, more heartache than anyone else in David's life. And now he's there, and he's there alone in the cave. This seems like poetic justice, doesn't it? What would you have done if you were David? Well, in verse 4, this is what his men said. This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Here at verse 4, the men say, God's doing this, David. God's providing this for you. Take the opportunity. And David had the opportunity to take care of all of his problems with one stroke of his sword. David could have eliminated all his grief and his pain and his trouble. But David chose not to. And that's the point of this whole story. David chose not to take revenge on Saul. Rather, he chose by faith to trust God that God would eventually put him on the throne. But here's where it gets really, really interesting. David goes beyond this. Not only did David leave this matter in God's hands, but David desired what most of us wouldn't even dream of in this situation. David desired reconciliation with the person who sinned greatly against him. So what we want to do is we want to look at five principles on peacemaking that we see in the life of David. Five steps to the peace process. And I really believe this is how we can learn to reconcile with people who sin against us. Let's continue reading in verse 5. Then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterwards, David was conscience-stricken for having done this. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay, or lay my hand on him, for he is the Lord's anointed. And with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. And then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul. Let's stop right there. The first step in reconciling with the person who sinned against you is, number one, show sincere desire. Can we put that up? If you're taking notes, write that down. Our first principle is show sincere desire. Because if you don't sincerely desire to reconcile with the individual, you'll never do it. You know, I've uh, been in counseling sessions with people before, and I've heard uh, terrible, tragic things uh, things that people have done to them. 
And I, uh, in those counseling sessions, have had people share with me, you know, I need to reconcile with that person. You know, I believe the Holy Spirit is leading me to uh, forgive that person and to reconcile. And so later on, even months later, I'll ask the person that same question, well, did you reconcile? And they'll tell me, no, I didn't. And many times it's because of either fear of confrontation or bitterness and resentment that they're still holding on to, or maybe it's just too much work emotionally for them. And those are the reasons why they still haven't reconciled with the individual that the Holy Spirit is beckoning them to go ahead and have closure with. You see, there will never be reconciliation between you and the offending party until it becomes a preeminent priority. Matthew chapter 5, can we put that up? In the New Testament, Jesus says it this way in verse 23, Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly. You see, Jesus is saying it's a priority. It should be in our lives. And one of the greatest traits of David is that the more we study his life, the more his desire we see for reconciliation. David is anguished when he is not right with God, first of all, and then when he's not right with others. And we look at his, uh, we look at his life through scripture, and all throughout we see uh, relationships where people are opposing him. And David seems so burdened with reconciling with those individuals. Some of the hardest times that David goes through is with Saul or with Abner or with Absalom because there are times when there's no reconciliation and his heart yearns to be reconciled. You see, Matthew 5, 9 says, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. You see, God's children are are marked by reconciliation. They show a sincere desire to be reconciled. You know, the Bible tells us that as peacemakers, we need to take the initiative to reconcile. The sincere desire translates into initiation toward reconciliation. Again, Matthew 18 and verse 15, if we can put it up in the New Testament, Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins, Go and show their fault just between the two of you. If they listen, you have won them over. Here's the truth. If there's one thing that I've learned in life, people are going to offend us. Brothers and sisters who are dearly loved in our family are going to sin against us. And we may desire to be reconciled with them, but if we say to ourselves, well, I'm not going to initiate, they sinned against me. Or they need to come and apologize to me before I do anything. If that is our attitude, we won't see reconciliation. You see, what does David do? Let's look in verse 8. Then David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My lord, the king. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. Now, I want you to see here how David initiates peacemaking. I want you to recognize two things that David did to show that he sincerely wants to be reconciled. Number one, notice where he confronts the king. David does not confront Saul in the cave. 
Now, if we could imagine a hypothetical scene where Saul is going to the bathroom, he's peeing in this cave, and all of a sudden, David surrounds him with all of his men, and he says, Saul, let's reconcile. You'd have to admit that that would be smart of David, wouldn't it? It'd be advantageous for David to be around his men when he's confronting Saul. But David knows that that wouldn't be real reconciliation. Saul would have been intimidated in that cave and would have said anything that David wanted to hear. You see, threats, intimidation was not the purpose of his heart. David's true desire, what's on his heart, and what he wants to do is reconcile. And so he waits until Saul is out of the cave and with uh, his 3,000 warriors and he's in safety. See, here's the awesome truth. If you really want reconciliation, your goal is not to intimidate. As a matter of fact, if reconciliation is your goal, you want that other person to feel as safe as possible. You, want, uh, you don't want their defenses to go up. You see, many times when we confront other people, our goal is to prove that we are right in being offended. And we can try to overpower or intimidate uh, and control the situation. You know, and when we do that, the person is so defensive that reconciliation cannot occur. But here we see that David knows where to confront Saul, and David also knows how to confront Saul. Look at it, number two, verse nine, it says, and David said to Saul, why do you listen when men say that David is bent on harming you? I want you to notice here, he diffuses the situation by giving Saul the benefit of the doubt. He's not full of suspicion. Rather, he is declaring that maybe the reason uh, Saul is doing this is because of what he has heard from others. Maybe he's received a bad report. You see, this isn't just some face-saving technique. There's real wisdom in what he's doing. David is creating a safe place where they can dialogue. He is accommodating in his process by giving him the benefit of the doubt. You see, David is paving the road for peacemaking to occur genuinely and naturally. You see, when we're confronting those who have sinned against us, are we wise in creating a safe place? Where we confront, how we confront. It's important that we have a a sincere desire to reconcile. Now, the second point we want to look at is here we see the initiation of goodwill initiate goodwill. That's the way that we need to be as peacemakers. That's number two. Let's look in verse 10. This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said I will not lay my hand on my Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. Now look in verse 11. David continues. He says, see my father. Look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe, but I did not kill you. See, there is nothing There is nothing in my hand to indicate that I'm guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. You see, when Saul came out of the cave, David followed him out and held up a piece of Saul's robe that he had cut off. I'm sure that the very first thing that Saul did was to look down at his robe and realized that a piece was missing. So when David raised this piece of fabric, do you know what he was doing? He was showing something. He was saying, this could have been your head 
if I were seeking revenge. I've proved my goodwill. I prove my love and my loyalty to you. You see, when you reconcile with somebody, it's important that your actions show goodwill. In the New Testament, in Romans chapter 12, can we put that up? Verse 18 through 20, it says this. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge. On the contrary, if he is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, this isn't literal burning coals. That would be an act of revenge, wouldn't it? A terrible act of revenge. But it's figurative. The idea is if you show goodwill, you pour burning coals on that person's head. What does that mean? When when we show goodwill to a person who has sinned against us, it awakens guilt. It awakens discomfort at the way that that person has been treating you. It stirs within a person a sense of remorse, and it gives them an opportunity for repentance. You see, it's so important for us to initiate goodwill. Now, number three, the third point is speak with gentleness. Speak with gentleness. Proverbs 15 and verse 1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. See, when we confront somebody who sinned against us, we must not come heated and ready to fight. And many times that's what people do. They come uh, and they communicate with insults or sarcasm or profanity. They, uh, They come with screams and tirades. But our goal, remember, is reconciliation. So we must come in a calm, open-minded manner and gentle in our dialogue. Now, what does a gentle answer look like? And here David gives us an example. Verse 11, he says, see my father. David calls Saul the most loving and respected word for father. He calls him uh, basically the idea of dad. David shows familial affection to Saul. As a matter of fact, Saul was David's father-in-law to begin with. And so he says, see, dad, see my father. And the reason why David is so gentle towards Saul, this is really important. The reason why David is so gentle towards Saul is that he never sees Saul as an enemy. He always sees him as family. You see, this is important. When we are sinned against uh, by brothers and sisters, other Christians, we tend to demonize that person who offended us. We see them as the enemy. But if that person is born again, if that person is trusted in Jesus, the Bible says there are brothers and sisters. They are family to us. You see, that changes the perspective that we should have, doesn't it? I want you to notice, and this is later on, when Saul dies, and we talked about it last week, didn't we? Later in 2 Samuel, uh, David responds to the news a certain way. Now, I didn't uh, have this put on our PowerPoint, so I just want you to listen because I think it's a beautiful, beautiful testament to how David felt about Saul. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, this is what he says. Then David and all the men with him took hold of their clothes and tore them. They mourned and wept and fasted till evening for Saul and his son Jonathan. And David took up this lament concerning Saul and his son Jonathan. Your glory, O Israel, lies slain on your heights. How the mighty have fallen. Tell it not in Gath. Proclaim it not in the streets of Ashkelon. Let the da- lest the daughters of the 
Uncircumcised rejoice. O mountains of Gilboa, may you neither have dew nor rain, nor fields that yield offerings of grain. For there the shield of the mighty was defiled. The shield of Saul no longer rubbed with oil. From the blood of the slain, from the flesh of the mighty, the bow of Jonathan did not turn back. The sword of Saul did not return unsatisfied. Saul and Jonathan in life, they were loved and gracious. And in death, they were not parted. They were swifter than eagles. They were stronger than lions. O daughters of Israel, weep for Saul, who clothed you in scarlet and finery, who adorned your garments with ornaments of gold. Wow. David genuinely saw Saul as family, as father, and he mourned him with that kind of perspective. You see, reconciliation is a reality when you realize that the person who offended you is not your enemy, but is in fact your family. And so often our words are harsh and accusatory and inflammatory when we must learn to use the proper words the proper way with the proper kind of perspective. Do we speak with gentleness? Number four uh, principle is declare the truth. Now, this is also very important, and it's a part of that peacemaking process. Let's look in verse 11. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. See, when you have been wronged, it's necessary for you to declare the truth of that sin so that you are are responsible to confront the person who has sinned against you with the truth. Now, you might ask, why? You know, uh, a while back, there was a pastor who had sinned against me. Uh, If I were to say his name, many of you would know. He's a megachurch pastor, a very famous pastor. And I remember uh, he had definitely sinned against me. And for a year, I was angry. As a matter of fact, I hated the guy for about a year. And I remember holding on to it until finally the Holy Spirit did work in my life where I felt like I needed to reconcile. And it wasn't right for me to hold this against him and be so hateful of him. And so I actually went uh, and saw him, and he was gracious enough uh, you know, to, to meet with me, and we met in his office, and I just let him know that I was angry with him, and, uh, you know, I hated him, and, uh, you know, that, that was wrong, and I asked for his forgiveness, and we prayed together, and, uh, you know, everything was okay. But I'll never forget, after our prayer, uh, and after that reconciliation, he asked me, so tell me what I did wrong. What was my sin? And I remember telling him, and I'm an Asian, right? And Asians usually, we, we like to be passive and uh, we like to bury things. And so I said, well, that doesn't matter. You know, what matters is, uh, you know, my feelings towards you and we've reconciled and so I'm fine with it. And I remember he wouldn't let it go. And he said, no, you need to tell me how I have sinned against you. And I remember thinking, well, what does that matter? And I remember him speaking those words Uh, by saying, you need to share this with me because God wants to speak uh, to me through you. That you need to share with me because God wants me to maybe change something. You know, why? Why is it important to declare the truth? Because God is teaching that person through you. Because that person needs an opportunity to confess and repent of something maybe they're ignorant of. 
And see, it's very important that the truth be given, of course, gently, of course, you know, uh, with the right perspective and attitude, but it still needs to come out. And we need to invite God in the process of that confrontation. Allow the Lord to be the mediator. Many times we forget to do this. Look in verse 12. David says, may the Lord judge between uh, you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. In verse 15, he says, may the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. You see, David's intention is not revenge, but it's a restoration of a relationship. And so he invites God into that process with Saul. My friend, we have to do that in our lives as well. You know, we can't be passive aggressive. We can't just let things slide. We have to share the truth of God so that real reconciliation happens. Here, David declares the truth. He invites God into the process, and he helps him realize his sin. David continues to allow the truth to reveal sin. Let's look in verse 14. He says to Saul, Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Who are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? He's saying, Dad, why are you coming after me? You know, I'm, I'm not that important. I'm, you know, and he uses the, the term, a dead dog, a flea. What he's saying is, it's foolish for the king of Israel to take 3,000 men and be hunting a nobody like me. Why are you doing that? David is saying, I'm not the thing that you should be consumed with. And definitely, Saul is consumed, right? His insecurity has gotten the better of him. You have more important kingly matters. You have pressing God-given responsibilities. Why are you obsessed with destroying me? What David is doing is he's holding up a mirror to Saul's face so that Saul can see what he looks like, so he can see his sin. And I want you to notice the conviction that is settled on Saul. Notice how Saul responds to this truth. Verse 16, when David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. Verse 17, you are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. Verse 18, you have just now told me about the good that you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. See, David was able to overcome evil with good. Here's the fifth point, and this is my last point. Keep on forgiving. Keep on forgiving. Saul realizes his sin, doesn't he? He admits it. Verse 19, when a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. Verse 20, I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name from my father's family. Verse 22, so David gave his oath to Saul. Then Saul returned home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Whoa, David and Saul are reconciled. Saul repented with tears and weeping. David took an oath that he would do all these things. All is rightly restored, isn't it? Now, we don't have time to look at this, but take my word for it and look for yourselves. In chapter 26, verses 1 and 2, let me read this because this is going to be unbelievable. In chapter 26, verses 1 and 2, this is later on after this uh, scene is passed. It says, The Ziphites went to Saul at Geba, 
and said, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hakalah, which faces Jessamon? So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with 3,000 of his chosen men of Israel to search for David. What the? This is deja vu all over again. It's a different desert, but it's the same number of men for the same purpose. Saul is out to destroy David. We see the exact same thing that Saul has repented of. Now, reconciliation, did it occur? Well, at this time it did, but in chapter 26, he's back to his old ways. This is unbelievable. When you read chapter 26, David actually has to go through the same exact steps of reconciliation all over again. Here's my point. Sometimes we go and reconcile. We forgive a person. They confess. They repent. There is oaths that are taken. But then, guess what? A little later, they commit the same sin against you. What do we do? What do we do? Well, in the New Testament, Jesus says this in Matthew 18, 21 and 22. We're very familiar with this passage, but let me remind you of it. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Up to seven times? But Jesus answered, I tell you not seven times, but 70 times seven. What Jesus is saying is keep on continually forgiving the person as many times as he or she needs forgiveness. Now, this is a very extreme case of sin, isn't it? But the principle is still the same, that we need to keep on forgiving. As peacemakers, that's what we're called to do. Well, what's the point of that, you might ask? If I keep forgiving a person who sinned against me, and I keep keeping, uh, and if I, uh, you know, keep a blank check, I mean, what good is that? Well, remember, the principle that we are learning of being peacemakers is also for you and for me, is to sanctify me and to sanctify you. And just like David, God is making you into a person after his own heart. Remember the book Peacemaker, it says that as peacemakers who reconcile and forgive, it becomes then a testimony to the whole world of the love and power of Jesus Christ. My friend, are we being the peacemakers that we need to be today? Are we over and over sharing the beauty of that? Remember, being a peacemaker, let me review the five steps again, or five principles, is to show a sincere desire to reconcile, to initiate goodwill in reconciliation, to speak with gentleness. Remember, they're family. Don't forget, declare the truth. Don't shy away from sharing uh, what's important. And then keep on forgiving as long as the person needs it. Those principles will allow you to have success and victory in your Christian life. And that's what we're called for, right? To be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And oh, how it speaks to us. Lord, sometimes we need rebuke. Sometimes, Lord, it's correction. Sometimes, Lord, it's training. Sometimes we just need to be taught. Father, wherever we are in our Christian lives, we pray that you would meet us there. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.